Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Thank you, sister, and thank you, brother, for those uh, teasers. I hope everyone will come out tonight. Um, just yesterday evening, um, as we were finishing up the services, I met very briefly with another pastor here, and we were talking, and one of the questions he asked me, he says, um, you know, tell me about your prayer life. You know, what, what wisdom do you have for me for my prayer life? And I had to sort of honestly say, ah, it's one of those places in my spiritual life where I have to fight, you know. Uh, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing tonight uh, more of what you have to share for the benefit of my own soul uh, and instruction and prayer and hope everyone will, will come out. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. I'm sorry I didn't get the page number for the few Bibles there, but I'm certain you'll be able to find it. Matthew chapter 19, and we wish to look this morning uh, under this theme of reading the Bible like Jesus, we wish to look this morning at verses 1 to 12. And as you're turning there, I'll just retrace our steps over the previous couple of days. Uh, you recall that we began on Monday in Luke 24. And the main thing we wish to see there in terms of how Jesus read his Bible is that he read his Bible really as autobiography. He read his Bible as, as pointing to his own life, his own mission, and the accomplishment of that mission uh, in the cross of Calvary and the resurrection. Uh, and so we were encouraging ourselves to read the Bible in a Jesus-centered way, to read the Bible not primarily or in the first instance as a story about us, but as a story about Jesus and what he has done for us, uh, then to appropriate those truths. Well, on Tuesday, uh, we were looking at Jesus uh, and his reading of the Bible, and we discovered there how God-centered Jesus was in his reading of the Bible in the, in the temptation in the wilderness, how he hung on every word that came from the mouth of God, uh, and, and how he had committed himself to doing the Father's will and to worshiping God alone. Uh, and so not only are we to read our Bibles in a way that, that keeps the main storyline of the Bible, of God's redemption through Jesus Christ in view, but like Jesus, we're to read our Bibles devotionally in a way that hopefully encourages us in our commitment to God himself, to his word, to his will, and to worship of God. And then yesterday we were reading um, in, in the Gospels, and we saw Jesus in his readings yesterday how he read the Bible in such a way as to make the voice of God, the speaking of God, present tense and personal. So we're coming down to our own devotional life now uh, and reading the Bible in such a way as to remind ourselves that when we read the scriptures, God is indeed speaking. And he's speaking to us, not abstractly, but specifically. Uh, and we have the great pleasure of meeting with him and talking with him. Well, this morning we want to gather one other lesson uh, from the way the Lord read the Bible in his encounter this time with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19. Last yesterday we were looking at his, one of his encounters with the Sadducees and their denial of the resurrection. Well, here we come to the Pharisees and uh, this issue of divorce. Notice now beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, 
He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For they are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and they are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and they are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has died as a ransom for us, to redeem us, O oh Lord, from the death and the penalty that we certainly deserved. And who, Lord, lived for us to become righteousness for us. That in him, O oh Lord, we might, we might be pleasing in your sight. And we thank you, Lord, that not only did he ransom us by his own life and death, but, but he also lived in such a way that, that inspires us, instructs us. That models for us even um, something as seemingly every day. As how to read. And so we pray that you would teach us even now. In Jesus name. Amen. So as we've been doing over these last couple of mornings. I want to give us a, a couple of observations from the text. In terms of how Jesus seems to read his Bible. And in a couple of applications for us. Uh, as we endeavor to read the Bible like him. First thing I want to point out is. Notice that Jesus takes a literal historical reading of the Bible. You see that there in verse 4, the, the Pharisees come to him, they ask the question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus goes in verse 4 right to the Bible, have you not read? It's a question that he often asked the Pharisees and it, and it reminds us that so much of the tension between Jesus and the other religious leaders had to do with this very thing we're talking about, how to read the Bible. They, they read the Bible scrupulously. Right? The, the Pharisees, these are the Bible guys of the New Testament, right? They, these are the conservative Bible believers in, in ancient Judaism. And yet, they read the Bible without understanding. They read the Bible with a, a veil over their eyes so that they couldn't see the Lord or see the, or see the truths of the Scripture as it related to the Lord. And so he often asks this question, which brings, it, which brings the conflict to the central point of, of the scriptures. He says, have you not read 
that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now, we, we all are familiar with the Bible, even from, uh, from the crest or from the children's program and the felt boards. We, we have a sense of what he's referring to, right? He's going all the way back to the garden. He's going all the way back to the beginning. And, and notice there, he doesn't, he doesn't treat the creation of Adam and Eve as myth. He treats the creation of Adam and Eve as historical fact. And he doesn't even blush at it. This is, a, this is a part of the Bible that's constantly under assault. This is a part of the scriptures that's constantly thought to be unscientific and therefore probably not true. And, and professing believers and, and Bible scholars sometimes say, well, we, got to, we have to take it poetically and, and, and not literally. Our Lord, whom I trust knows more about the Bible than 19th century German scholars... He doesn't blush at all, does he? There's no hiccup. There's no pause. He doesn't sort of drop his head and shuffle his feet, slightly embarrassed. Oh, I hate to kind of point to this as if it's a weak argument. Oh. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? You see, beloved, the Bible's history Even the ancient history of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, is true. It's true. It's reliable. And and, and, and notice something else here. It's not just Moses' account. You, You know, we saw that dynamic yesterday where the Pharisees say, hey, Moses has said this and Jesus said God said this. Look at what he says here. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? What's the subject there? He, right? Meaning God. Then notice verse 5. And said. What's the subject there? It's still he, isn't it? It's still God. If you were to look back at Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 24 or so, where Jesus is quoting from there, You'll notice that the the portion that Jesus quotes here is actually the portion that Moses narrates. In other words, Moses doesn't tell us that God is speaking in Genesis 2, 24. But when Jesus reads those very words, he says it's God who spoke them. God said this. And beloved, I assure you, there is no better historian than God himself. There was no one better able to render to us accurate, true, defensible history than God. And so Jesus here takes God at his word. He he reads the Bible as true history. Let me give you another example if I can of this. Uh, If if I were to ask you the question, what, what account in the Bible do you think is maybe most fantastic to people, most, most difficult to believe um, for, for people, maybe people who aren't Christians or maybe even professing Christians, kind of just struggle to sort of, ah, I'm not sure that's really history. Any, any nominations? Jonah and the whale. Right? Jonah and the big fish. Look back in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. Because we're thinking about this, this point about how Jesus read, reads the history as history. 
And he takes the history and accepts it. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, notice some of the scribes and Pharisees answer him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You see how the Lord takes even things that are difficult for us to conceive sometimes? And he doesn't blush or tremble or step back at all. He quotes Jonah as a historical figure and the great fish which swallowed him and spat him out as a historical incident. And so we are led to believe that when we read the historical portions of our Bibles, we should read them for true history. We should trust them and understand them as as having been given to us from God who does not lie, who cannot lie who makes no errors. So we see our Lord reading the scriptures as history. Notice the second thing. He not only accepts the history of the Bible as true, but notice the second thing. He takes that history to its logical conclusion. In other words, he understands that the history, even the ancient history of the Bible, has application for contemporary questions. You see that there in verses 8 and 9. So he goes on to say they are no longer two, but one flesh in verse 6. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Jesus command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. You see there in verse 6 how he begins, so. In other words, consequently. That, that ancient history doesn't live back there unable to reach us. That so, that consequently, or that therefore, means that that ancient history has immediate relevance for us, properly understood. And and here, Jesus says, now, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And this has great relevance for big questions debated in our day, doesn't it? In the 1970s in the United States, I'm not sure if this is the case here across the pond as well. Maybe it is. But divorce laws changed in the 1970s. Prior to that, it used to be the case that if a couple were going to divorce, someone had to produce some reasons for that, right? The state had an interest in making sure that marriages formed stayed together, right? So there had to be some kind of fault alleged and demonstrated. Well, the argument became that that was very costly and acrimonious, that it engendered a lot more fighting than was necessary, and that it would be cheaper to the state, cheaper to families, if, in fact, we had something that has now come to be called no-fault divorce laws. Nobody's at fault. Uh, we just don't want to be together anymore. Can you imagine what happens? The divorce rate spikes. 
Marriages become less and less tenuable. The idea that undergirded marriage in Western civilization, a a biblical idea that two people, once unrelated, now become one flesh and they are to be joined together for life, well, that that began to crumble when you change the the assumptions about the the duration of marriage. And and so here, just quoting the ancient history of creation has relevance to a question like that. Or, Notice what he says here. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. Verse 4, make them male and female. And so verse 6, they become one flesh, joined together, not to be separated. This has application for the current debates about uh, so-called gay marriage too, doesn't it? But here very clearly, our Lord said he made them male and female. And that those two are to be joined together as complements in a one flesh union. That, that, that is the definition of marriage. Male and female, that's not incidental, that's integral to the, na- the nature of marriage. And, and it's only therefore one male and one female who can, who can thus be joined in the union. That ancient history, speaking from eons ago, from the very foundation of the world, from the very garden of Eden, speaking relevant relevant, vital definition for our time. And this is what we get when we read our Bibles, trusting the history, trusting it to be true, trusting it to be reliable, and because it comes from God, trusting it to be good. It's just good for us. And so our Lord takes these, this history and he brings it down to its logical conclusion. Now, I want us to see one other thing that our Lord does. He he quotes the scriptures, he reads the scriptures, he applies the scriptures, but unlike us, here's one way we cannot read the scripture. Unlike us, he stands over the scripture. Notice what he does. He says there in verses verse 9, or let's stay with verse 8 and 9. He said that then, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Read sometime the the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 down to chapter 7. And particularly in chapter 5, the second half of chapter 5, when uh, Jesus sort of begins his exposition of the law. And he will say things like, you have heard it said that thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, if you look at your brother with hatred in your heart, you've committed murder already. Or you have heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at someone else's spouse with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery already. He's doing what he said he came to do in Matthew chapter 5 around verses 16 and 17. He said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And, and there he doesn't merely mean that he has come to fulfill it in some... Um, Um, how should we put it, in some sense of of merely achieving the law. But he's come to bring the law to us in its fullest scope. And so when when he says now, it's not just about whether or not you've done this outward act, but what's happening in the heart prior to the act. He is fulfilling the law. He is He is filling it out. The reformers, when they talked about the law and they wrote their catechisms and things of that sort, they were careful 
to make sure that the folks reading the catechisms or reading their writings on the law didn't think of the law as merely prohibitive. That is, that we didn't think of the law as entirely negative. So that we didn't stop at thou shalt not kill, but that we also felt the positive force of the law. That that same law that says thou shalt not kill also implied thou shalt love thy neighbor instead. And so when Jesus comes now and he stands over the law and he says to the Pharisees here, I say to you, that is remarkable. It is remarkable. Because here was one taking what everyone acknowledged to be the very word of God, the holy law of God, under which all God's people were meant to live and to be ruled by. Here was one standing over the law and not only reinterpreting the law, but but doing so in the authority of his own person. I say. No one can speak that way but God. Here is one with the personal pronoun I communicating all the authority and glory of deity. I say to you. And so he fills out the scripture for us. He he breathes a fullness into the scripture. He expands its meaning and its depth and its reach. Gives it a more vigorous life in the ears of his hearers. And so this is how our Lord read his Bible. He read it as historically true. He read it as not only historically true, but but relevant for the contemporary questions of the day. And he read it as one having authority over it and the ability to, to, to sort of flesh it out for us. And that has implications for how we read the Bible. Let me give you a couple. One is very simply, we should accept the Bible's history is true. Our Lord did, and so should we. We should accept that what the Bible gives us as a, as a sort of picture of the development of the world and the nations of the world and the events of the world. That while the Bible doesn't try to be an exhaustive history, I mean, this is not Gibbon's The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. It's it's not attempting to give us that kind of history. It is nonetheless giving us true history, redemptive history, centering on the major events of God's work in the world to reclaim for himself a people. And whatever it speaks to, it speaks truly to it. And we want very much to hold on to that because the implications of that history are farther reaching than we can know. Once again, just to cite the examples of of, of current debates about marriage. If, If we abandon the Bible's just sort of basic history and point of view on marriage, then we we abandon the only worldview that sort of gives us good fences in which to keep and to protect and to nurture marriage. I mean, where's the next fence if you drop the biblical fence? Where does the slide stop? Now, this this becomes for us cement beneath our feet. This is for us a firm foundation, as we were singing of a moment ago. It's in his word, and it's in the historical portions of his word, just as it is in every other portion of his word. 
So we want to accept this history and do it with confidence because our faith is a historical faith. It's also a verifiable faith. Right? So we're not plucking things out of the ether. We're not, we're not, we're not making up. Um, this is not myth and legend that is unverifiable. I mean, Oxford Don C.S. Lewis you know, basically said that when people say to him things like, uh, the, in the Bible, full of myth and legend, he's pretty sure that they've never read myth or legend. You know, because that's an entirely different thing altogether. This thing sort of is dripping with, soaked in truth. And it may be tested. It may be challenged. And, and we don't have to fear when the Bible's tested or challenged because it's true. And truth will always prevail. And so we want to accept the history. But secondly, as we've been saying, we, we do want to learn to be skillful in applying the history, just as our Lord did here. Yeah, I, I mentioned already uh, marriage and divorce debates, homosexuality debates. But, but even in the face of the new atheism. You know, the sort of rabid atheism of the, of the Richard Dawkins of the world, uh, a kind of sneering, hostile incredulity in the face of the scripture. Well, we, we don't have to wilt. We don't have to fall backwards because they have PhDs and hold university chairs and, and write really sloppy books. We don't, <laughs> we don't have to fear that. Not one bit. Because God's word is true. You know, and simple questions asked of our atheist friends very often open the door for further conversation. Well, you know, our atheist friend, he asked the question, well, where does anything come from? Why does anything exist at all? Well, he really doesn't have a logical, defensible answer to that question. He has to assume the properties of deity are applied to natural matter. Well, the earth has always existed, or, you know, matter has always existed. Really? So matter has just always been there. And then it began to behave intelligently? Come on, man. No, behind the creation, before anything natural was, was God. He spoke and the universe leapt into existence. By the power of his word, he framed the creations. Isn't this not what the Bible tells us? We may stand on this and we will see that, that our answer to those questions are far more compelling than the answers made up by men who were not there at the beginning. Who have fanciful ideas and who morally, John 3 tells us, Love darkness rather than the light. A third thing here in terms of how we read our scriptures. We, we should, because Jesus has filled out the meaning of the text, we should read the spirit of the text without spiritualizing the text. So we read not only the letter of the Bible, but we also need to remember the, the spirit of the Bible and, and, and read the spirit of the Bible Without spiritualizing the text. Let me see if I can illustrate what I mean by that. Um, look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. I, I mentioned this a moment ago. We'll read a few verses here just to see it by way of illustration. Jesus says here in Matthew five seventeen, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's a reference to the whole Old Testament really. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, in verse 18 there, he's laying, he's laying emphasis on even the, the smallest sort of um, punctuation marks of the Hebrew language. Not a jot or tittle. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You listen to verse 20 and you hear the, you hear the challenge in that. But then verse 21, he begins to illustrate what he means. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you have paid the last penny. You see what just happened there? Verse 21, he refers to, you shall not murder. Clear quotation of the law. And that there's a judgment that comes along with murder. But notice how, what he does. In verse 22, he, he goes a bit deeper. He goes to anger. It's out of that anger that murder arises, right? And he says, really, if you're angry with your brother, you'll be liable to judgment. And then, and then look what he does there in the second half of that verse. Whoever insults his brother, not, not kill them physically, but even, even the kind of murder that is in the form of insult, the kind of slaying of character, the kind of marring of the image of God in the form of insult. He points to that. And, and then he goes out a bit further. Verse 23. This has implications for your worship. So that so far from only talking about murder, he's also talking about our worship. So that if we're at the altar about to make an offer and there remember that we have something against our brother, he has something against us, we, we leave the gifts at the altar, we go and be reconciled. You see the positive force of the law? The positive force of the law requires us to do good to neighbor, to love our brother and sister, to live in a reconciled way, to live with clean hearts, not, not unforgiving, bitter, hateful hearts. And that, that, in the best sense, this is how we, how we avoid murder. You see, he's filled that out for us. He's given us the spirit of the text as well as the letter of the text. And so when we read our Bibles, we, we too want to learn to read the spirit of the text. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing so odd as seeing a preacher preach John 3.16, scowling. You know, there's nothing quite as misplaced as a preacher preaching on hell, as one person said, without tears. We don't preach hell triumphantly. Turn or burn as if we get glee out of the perishing of the unbelieving. 
No, we, if we preach hell, we must preach hell with broken heart and wet faces because we know that hell is real and that it's more terrible than anyone can imagine. And that it is eternal. And so Paul, as Paul says, we, we plead with men to be reconciled. We, we preach hell pleading. Not, we don't have any glee in the final judgment of God. It is right, his judgment. And it is eternal. And it is terrible to fall into the hands of a holy God. And so we look upon people made in his image, made for fellowship with him. And we see them, as we heard the other night, read from the Amy Carmichael dream. We see them walking over the precipice, plunging into the abyss with a hell, with a wide, yawning mouth. And we weep. And we plead. And we yell. There is a salvation. There is a Savior. There is a way of escape. Christ has died for your sins. He has suffered the wrath of God. And he has risen for your justification. Having life in his hands. Come to him. Come. Believe upon him. And live. The spirit matters. As much as the letter. And Christ here is teaching us. As he expands the scriptures. He's teaching us to. To also embrace the spirit of the scripture. To read it with the same tone that God intends. And not to spiritualize it. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, You've probably heard a sermon. I'm embarrassed to admit I've probably preached a sermon like this as a young preacher. Uh, The great story of David and Goliath. Which is true history. I've heard many a preacher perhaps preach David and Goliath and refer to David getting his smooth stones and, and then sort of turn that story into application for us and say something like, what are the Goliaths in your life? Well, that's not really what that story is about. Maybe as some fourth order or fifth order application would be appropriate, but, but David slaying Goliath isn't about us and the very scary things in our lives that we have to face. And it isn't about us only needing one stone. No, it's about God's anointed being raised up to be king over Israel to whom God makes covenant promises that there will be a son of David who rules on his throne eternally. And David, as the father of the Davidic covenant, the father of the Davidic kingdom, he stands there for us as a, a type of Christ, a picture of Christ to come. And we see his failings, but those are only the dark negatives to the colorful truth that Christ never fails. That's who David is. That's how David is to be preached. So we don't want to spiritualize the text, but we do want to get the spirit of the text. And Christ who teaches us how to how he has expanded the text, teaches us to read the Bible that way. So our Lord reads the Bible with a historical truth in mind. He doesn't blush at it. He brings that truth to bear on contemporary questions. And he gives us the fuller meaning of that history. And so too, if we would read the Bible like our Lord, we would believe the history and embrace it. 
we would apply it to the questions of our day and we would seek to understand the meaning of the text both literally and in spirit that we might both keep the letter and the heart of the Bible. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your son. And we thank you for what we have seen of him in this passage. We thank you for how marvelous your word is. And we thank you that you continue to speak to us in it. Help us to read your Bible well. Help us to accept what is here as true because it is. And good because it comes from you. And help us to walk in it, O Lord, by your spirit day by day. Lord, give us our daily bread. Feed us thy word, we pray. And keep us in your will. In Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.